Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. At one point, he completely lost it and yelled at me and said, if you think I'm a liar, then you should then you should refer me to the Attorney General's office for perjury. And the Attorney General was defending right the state of Michigan. <laughs> so I turned to the jury and I said, you think they're going to do something about it? Please rise. Court is now in session. Uh, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this afternoon? Um, I'm doing good. I had I had a rough. We're recording this on a Monday. I had a rough, I had a very Monday Monday morning. So I'm I'm just glad to make it to the afternoon. Yeah, exactly. There's always a lot to get done at the beginning of the week. Yeah, but uh, but we're here and we've got a fantastic guest today. Yes, I am super excited. Um, this is somebody that I know from before the podcast, but he's really accomplishing great things. And so we're excited to have him on. So our guest today is John Marco. He is the uh, owner, founder, principal, head honcho at Marco Law um, in Detroit, Michigan. You can look him up at marcolaw.com. That's M-A-R-K-O law.com. Um, so John, thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank you guys for having me and good afternoon. And Yvonne, it's so good to see you again. It's so good to see you. And I'm going to tell, um, our listeners a little bit about you for, for those who haven't met you or don't know you. Um, as I said, John is based in Detroit and his firm represents plaintiffs in all kinds of litigation, um, personal injury, civil rights, employment and labor, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, and pe folks have been hurt by defective products. Um, John really um, is just a super involved guy. He just gets out there. He gives back to the profession. Um, I'm just going to list some of the things that he does for, for professional organizations, but he's on the Detroit Bar Association Board of Directors. He was out there on Capitol Hill. Um, he worked for the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. And one of kind of the fun facts to tie it back to one of our other episodes, Steve, I don't know if you noticed that- I saw that Okay, that, that John worked with um, Jeffrey Figer, one of our previous guests on the show. Um, great, great guest, and I have to imagine just somebody who is uh, very entertaining to work with. Yeah, he was entertaining to work with, and I still do work with Jeff, and so I'm still being entertained. Right. <laughs> well, that's great. And that's it's, great. It's a lot better to work with Jeff than for Jeff. But, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I could, I could absolutely see that. Um, well, so as you might imagine, um, John's been named a rising star by super lawyers many times. Um, he's been named one of the top 10 personal injury attorneys in the state of Michigan by the National Academy of Personal Injury Lawyers. And um, one of my favorite things, though, about John was this quote that I think I, I got this from his website, although I'm not sure. But uh, it says that as a little boy, he was always being told by his teachers and authority figures to use his inside voice because he was too loud, to not argue with opinions that he didn't agree with, and to always follow the rules, even if they didn't make any sense. And I think that sounds familiar to a lot of lawyers. Um, yes. And John says that those are the traits that... Uh, well, they got him in trouble when he was younger. Those are part of the things that uh, make him a great lawyer today. And I just felt like that's that's perfect. That's right on the money. Um, Thanks, Thank, thank you, Yvonne. Thank you. Well, I will stop um, uh, just just singing your praises. 
a little bit, but I'm still kind of going to, but we're going to go ahead and get into the case that, that you're on to talk about today. And I think it's really fitting because I'm not sure when this podcast will air, but I was in reading about the materials you sent us. Um, today is the first day of Black History Month, and mm-hmm. John's case um, is a, is about some justice that he got for some really horrifying racial discrimination um, that his clients were suffering. And I I feel like I should almost like give a trigger warning or something to our listeners, because I think it's really important when we talk about this case, and I know John does too, to talk about the language that was really being used and, and, and what his clients were really going through. But it's some pretty, um, you know, it's like, I'm tempted to sort of like not want to say those words or not want to, you know, to want to weasel around it kind of just because um, of how, you know, racially charged and offensive and derogatory it really is. But well, and, and, um, beyond, and, and to find a state agency where this was an everyday occurrence. I, I mean, I didn't I mean, you know, you hear of racism all the time. I guess I, I didn't think that places like this still exist where where just on a day in day out basis of just open racism uh towards an african american it's just uh, terrible yeah and so uh, so john what i'm going to do is tell everybody just kind of the basics about your case and then um we'll get more into the details of you know your your obviously you know more than us about what happened and then also how you approached the case how you tried the case um and your result which um spoiler alert was a great result um so the case is Lisa and Cedric Griffey versus the Michigan Department of Corrections this was a case that John tried in 2019 to verdict in um the circuit court of Hen- uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to do that <laughs> Genesee County <laughs> rhymes with Tennessee Genesee right. County um so John had two clients, a husband and wife. Lisa was a Lapeer County probation officer and her husband, Cedric, was a, was a deputy warden. So they both worked for the Department of Corrections. And we're going to start with Lisa. Lisa um, had was working for the Department of Corrections as a probation officer, and she transferred um, to a new workplace in Lapeer after her husband, Cedric was promoted. And we're going to talk more about him later, but so that's why she switched jobs and she goes to this office that is essentially an all white office. She is the only African-American. She's the only person of color. And disappointingly, she was very much made to feel like the only African-American there. And to hear what she was routine, routinely called is, is horrible. But um, as, as Lisa alleged in the complaint and as, as John proved at trial, she was referred to as Mammy. Um, she was referred to as the black one um, or the woman with all the different hairstyles. Um, sometimes they would order pizza in her office and she'd get asked if she wanted chitlins on her pizza. She was shown um, very racially derogatory um, memes and things like that. Um, and, and in addition to those things, which are horrible in, them, in and of themselves, she was also really made to feel for her safety in other ways. For example, um, they'd have folks that needed probation checks or something that were known sort of racists or um, or folks to have negative feelings about African-Americans. And they would say around the office that that Lisa should be the one to do to do these probation checks. Just really, 
really rough stuff. So Lisa did what you're supposed to do in these situations, and she would file EEOC complaints at work, and nothing would happen. She, you know, the whole process was really made difficult for her, which we'll talk about. Um, there was really no effect of it. She eventually transfers to a different location in Flint where the harassment continued. So Lisa eventually files a, a case arising out of the, all this discrimination that she's suffering at the workplace. So you think, okay, that's it. So she and her husband bring a case. No, that's not it. As if this was not enough. After Lisa files her case, um, her husband starts suffering retaliation at work because somehow once Lisa's case becomes known to the administration at the Department of Corrections, Cedric's bosses find out um, or folks that Cedric works with, whatever. And this employee of 29 years, a 29 year record of really solid and excellent service. I mean, he literally received excellence awards um, right around this time starts getting all this retaliation at work. He starts getting written up for stuff that sound, looks to be total bullshit. Um, and <laughs> I'm just going to start cussing early. Um, and is basically, it's he's constructively discharged, essentially, which lawyers are familiar with that term. But he's basically made to quit because his workplace beca becomes so intolerable for him. And one of the things that somehow Cedric was criticized for was reporting that one of his co-employees had referred to an African-American employee as a monkey. Um, and somehow that was Cedric's problem, not the, not the person who actually did that, but it was Cedric's problem for reporting that. Um, so believe it or not, both Cedric and Lisa were suffered this kind of discrimination. And so they both had their own um, discrimination cases that they could bring that that John helped them file and try to a jury. And we're going to talk a little bit more, John, I had some questions about the legal background of those claims, but ended up being a six week trial with about 40, over 40 witnesses um, of an all white jury. And the jury found in Lisa and Cedric's favor, um, found that Lisa was subjected to all sorts of intimidating, hostile, offensive work environment that the Department of Corrections was responsible for, um, and that she suffered, uh, obviously, adverse employment action as a result of that. Um, and as for Cedric, um, same thing, that he, that he was basically doing protected things. He was doing his job, and he was subject to adverse employment action um, because of it. And so the jury's verdict, which I know everybody really wants to hear, totaled over $11.6 million. Um, specifically, Lisa was awarded five point, um, let's see, I've got $25,000 for past economic damages, 2.75 million for past emotional distress, 857,000 for future economic damages, and 1.5 million for future emotional distress. And then as for Cedric, he was awarded $1.9 million for past emotional distress, $1.9 million for future economic damages, and $2.5 million for future emotional distress. Really, really terrific results in um, what I think almost any lawyer, especially any lawyer that does plaintiff's work knows, is a tough tough area of the law. I think a lot of lawyers are really intimidated by employment cases. Um, and so before we sort of, normally I like to dig right into what I got wrong about the facts and what we need to flesh out. But before we do that, John, I'm really hoping for our listeners um, 
that you can give perspective on on two things, which is is first for those who don't know more information about why these cases are tough, what you look for, what they come in and why they're why they can be really tough to prove, even if you kind of know what happened. Um, and then also a little bit, you you brought these cases under under um, law in Michigan, the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act. And if you can just tell folks a little bit about that and how that factors into these these types of cases. Sure, sure. Thank you. No, you did a great job laying out the, the introduction. You did it better than I could have done myself. I wish I would have had you there trying the case with me. We might have gotten <laughs> I don't think so. I think I would have just uh, held you back. But <laughs> the um, no, these are Yvonne, these are hard cases. Uh, in fact, the Griffiths had actually been a, a few other lawyers before they came to me. Um, you know, unfortunately, when I screen these types of cases, you have to screen them very critically. I mean, uh, you know, for maybe every 25 that come, I will pick one. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. First is just the general uh, area of employment law. There is every case is a motion case. Okay, every employment case is you're always going to have a motion to dismiss. And a lot of these employment cases do get dismissed because uh, there's so many pitfalls. You have to you have to prove so many things in order to sustain the claim. So, for example, like let's take Lisa's case. Right. We know this racist stuff happened. At least the plaintiff knew it happened. And we knew we were going to be able to prove that. But that's not good enough for the uh, uh, harassment claim under the law. For a case like this, we had to show that it was severe and per, uh, pervasive enough that it materially altered a condition of her work. We had to show that it was, um, which involves showing that it's frequent, that it's really, really heinous, that it's really bad. Um, that I, I was pretty confident we were gonna be able to do, and, and we did. But then we had to show that, they, that the Department of Corrections had noticed, so that means that they knew about it or should have known about it and had an opportunity to correct the problem because the law says that the employer uh, doesn't have to take actions if they don't know about it. So notice was really tough because Lisa had put up with the abuse trying to get along and go along for a few years uh, until she complained. She started in November 2014. It wasn't formally complained about till August of 2016. So these types of pitfalls, such as that, which would immediately on first blush seem like a great case. Oh, this lady was called these horrible discriminatory remarks. It's not that easy. Um, and so that's one reason why they're really tough. Another reason um, is that the, there's, there's, uh, the state of Michigan has a reputation for refusing to settle cases. Uh, they, this was a zero offer case. So uh, the entire time, I mean, even after two weeks of trial, the judge called us in and said, guys, what are we doing? You know, uh, you might want to think about settling this. And even then, it was a zero offer case. So that's that makes it very difficult. I mean, when I file these cases against the state, I know that more likely than not, I'm going to be trying the case in court. And then having to deal with appeals for the next two to three years, such as the Griffey's case. Um, and that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. And so uh, they, they are, they're, they're tough cases. Um, and, you know, the states, I feel like, do get sometimes the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's the state of Michigan or it's the government. 
the judge, you know, a lot of times the judge is a former prosecutor or former state employee. There's a big state of Michigan seal behind the judge. So, I mean, these are state servants and um, whether it's purposefully or not, I think that they do get a lot of benefit of the doubt. So uh, those are some of the reasons that that it's uh, these cases are really, really tough and that a lot of people don't do them. Just a lot of people don't do them at all. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is ltsatlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. So a lot of people, their exposure to this would be in like a, usually a federal, you know, civil rights case, whereas you had a Michigan um, sounds like a similar sort of Michigan component that you could use. And I just wasn't sure if there was anything unique about that or, or, or different for these cases. Yeah, that's a great question. I have this conversation a lot and there's different schools of thought. So, you know, some people say that I'm wrong with this. I, I don't, I think that it works. And I, the reason that I filed, so the, there's all obviously the federal anti-discrimination laws, which you can file under, which is like Title VII. And you can go through uh, the federal laws for discrimination and be in federal court. Um, I chose to file state under state law and state court. And there's a few reasons that I did that. And there's some advantages and disadvantages. Number one, um, you're obviously going to be in, in state court compared to federal court. Now, you have to look at your jurisdiction on this. I think the federal courts in the last four years, because of our president, our former president rather, have become less friendly for these types of cases, um, especially in the Sixth Circuit uh, on appeal. And so for me, that was a consideration, okay, where I was going to be. Genesee County, I, I thought was going to be a much more favorable form. So it was a matter of where are we going to be venue. Uh, and then secondly, you can look at um, damages. So in, fe in federal court, 
you get punitive damages, which you don't get in Michigan. Some states allow you punitive damages, um, but they're capped for governmental entities. So I, I forget what it is under Title VII. I think punitives are capped at like 200 or something for the government. So there wasn't going to be that huge swing there that I think was going to be worth it. Um, you also have to deal with different defenses in federal court. You have to have a unanimous jury, whereas in state you can agree on non-unanimous. Um, so at the end of the day, the driving factor was ease of use. You don't have the disclosures requirements. Federal or the state courts are a little more friendly, um, at least here. And I thought we could get a better venue. Uh, so better judge, better venue and friendlier rules. So that's why I did it. So, John, uh, speaking of uh, better venue, talk a little bit about Genesee County and what it's uh, like to try a case there. And then uh, I'm just wondering when you noticed that you had struck a jury that was all white, what was going through your mind and your client's mind? Uh, when I struck a jury that was all right, I, my first oh, thought oh, was all white, all white, yeah. all white. Yeah, all white. My first thought was, damn it, um, because. <laughs> You know, it's it's harder for us, and when I say us, I mean we're all white here, to truly empathize and understand of what it's like to be treated differently because of the color of your skin for such a long period of time. A lot of I'd, I would dare to say most African Americans understand that much better than we ever could, right. because they've lived it, or they've had family members that have lived it, friends that have lived it. They've seen it up close and personal to them or their loved ones. Uh, so it's not just about, oh, I have a black client. I want a black jury. Uh, it's more about they truly understand what it's like. Um, now, you know, we, we can say we understand it. I don't believe that we can ever understand it unless it's happened to us or someone right. close to us. Right. So right. that was a big problem. And that is, in fact, why I, I had an all white jury, because. A lot of the African-Americans, I actually had African-Americans in the pool and they were candid and honest about inherent bias that they have. And a lot of them said, look, I've been discriminated against. We haven't even started the case, but I already am leaning towards the plaintiff and I don't think I can be fair. Um, so that was frustrating because, you know, they, they were, I think, in a unique position to be able to add some of that touch. So I was a little nervous. I, I got to tell you, I was a little nervous, but we addressed the issue of race head on. And I talked to uh, the jurors in, in, in opening and in closing, you know, I own this fact. And I told them, look, I'm white. My clients aren't. And, and the judge is white and the defendants are white and everyone else in this courtroom is white. Uh, and, you know, this this is difficult. This is a difficult issue that we need to discuss. I'm, I'm scared a little bit. Um, you, you know, you you heard the African Americans on the jury candidly talk about their experiences, and I, and I'm a little fearful that somehow that's going to affect my client or make it harder because it's harder for us to understand some of these experiences. Uh, but I have to trust you uh, to to do the right thing, and they did. Um, and, and so that was a concern. It was a fear, but you know, we addressed it, we used it, and they did the right thing. And I'll tell you, I got I to say, this was one of the best juries I've ever seen. They, we, we were in trial for, uh, the verdict was right on the sixth week. There was 41 witnesses, uh, and nobody was falling asleep. 
They were upright, taking notes till the very end, to the bitter end. I had no idea what was going to happen. I don't think anybody did. Um, but they were very, very uh, good jury, very attentive jury. So, so it all worked out. But that was certainly a concern. I think it's always a concern in a race case. Uh, Genesee County is unique. So Genesee County is the, um, it is where the Flint uh, lead poisoning crisis happened. I don't know if you remember that, but the state of Michigan, um, the the, the Flint, you see it all their, all their drinking water from a municipal plant all the way down in Detroit. They pump it all the way up there. Flint's like an hour north of Detroit. They shifted the uh, water pipeline to this new pipeline an old pipeline, but they started pumping water through it and it leached lead out uh, because of the chemicals that were treating the water and it literally poisoned uh, the population. And right. kids were getting lead poisoning and all kinds of horrible stuff. I do think that, I, you know, I wasn't, uh, I didn't know how that was going to play out, but I do think that that was helpful in this case because I think there was a distrust of government, a distrust of uh, people in Lansing making decisions that were ruining people's lives uh, and kind of doing it nonchalantly. And this case that had uh, tie-ins to this case because all the people, a lot of people that made decisions that ruined Lisa and Cedric's life were just in Lansing kind of nonchalantly making these decisions from an office in Lansing that were having real world effect on people that they seemed really detached from. And I think that really upset the jury. And, uh, you know, at, at, in fact, in their verdict, they requested that the judge allow them to be able to do a stipulation. And the judge said, well, what's the request? And the jury had requested as part of their verdict that the individuals in Lansing who made these decisions that affected my client's lives would have to spend one month a year going back and working the, the base level job to remember what it's like to be uh, on the ground floor and not wow. in an ivory tower in Lansing. So I think that uh, that did help. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, a great, that's a great message. I mean, to, you know, unfortunately, it's not something that you could do. But I mean, wow, what a uh, what a powerful message from the jury. Yeah, I was. I think they were really offended by the um, by what the state of Michigan did in this case. So just closing out the the jury selection process for one second before we move on, was there any issues of like a Batson challenge for racially motivated uh, peremptory strikes or anything like that, that when you're in a case that involves race? Yeah, you know, I always like to use Batson challenges. In fact, I have a a bench memo usually ready. And usually what my practice is, I'll hand it to the judge right before voir dire starts to remind the judge about the Batson law and, and what it is. And again, that is, you know, it's unconstitutional to strike a juror because of the race. And so the procedure is if I, if you, if they, if the other side strikes an African-American or any minority, the other side can make a Batson challenge. Then the person who struck the minority has to articulate a reason for why they, a non-discriminatory reason. And then the judge can make a ruling on it. Um, and so I usually like to do it right away just to put a shot across the bow to say, Hey, you know, you can't do this again because it's very easy to, to conjure up any type of excuse. I don't like, the, right. I don't like, um, uh, you know, how old they are. I don't like, um, you know, anything you can do anything. 
So uh, I always have that ready, but we didn't have any bats and challenges in this case. Unfortunately, you know, the, uh, there, there was, there was no basis for one. Uh, right. And they didn't actually have to strike them. The African-Americans had self-deselected. And despite right. my best efforts to rehabilitate them, you know, for example, I remember one lady who said, you know, sir, I've been discriminated against. I have some really strong feelings about it. I already am leaning towards your client to him and heard the evidence. And I said, you know, well, look, if everybody who came to jury duty didn't have feelings that they brought with them on the topics, we wouldn't be able to ever pick a jury. Uh, but, you know, she said she couldn't be fair. So, right. So no, that, but that's a good point. I mean, normally you want to have that in your arsenal ready to go. Yeah, it is, though. I mean, you think about it and, you know, sort of leading into this case, certainly when I was reading about it on my own, but even when I was talking about it just now, talking about how how shocking some of this stuff is. And as Steve mentioned, the flip side is you've basically got a bunch of potential African-American jurors who this this story sounds very familiar to. Right. And so, you know, I do think it's, it's being sheltered and not having to deal with it as white people that about how often something like this um, happens. I'm wondering, John, did you get to just while we've been talking about the jury, if you got to talk to, um, did you get to talk to them afterwards? Yes, I did. And, um, you know, I think that they did not believe the, uh, defense and that the defense had said and done a lot of things that were lies and that angered them great. They, they were really angry about it. Uh, they didn't believe the defendants. They believed our, our you know, the facts that we presented. Um, well, it, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, mention, you know, reading the opening and the closing um, what was pretty striking to me because the opening, you did a great job of sort of talking about the the discrimination that Lisa had gone through and how, you know, for all of her life, she had faced stuff like this and usually, you know, would just, you know, turn the other cheek, uh, let it roll off her back, you know, and just keep working, put her head down and work. But it just had gotten to a point at this particular place that she couldn't take it anymore. And so she decided to do what was right. But then what, what I found so striking was, is that by the time you got to close, I mean, like, I guess the way I can describe it is, is the opening was was very sort of straightforward on the facts, which it should be and and very, um, you know, like this is discrimination. But it, by the close, uh, you, you could tell that the way they had defended the case really fed into, uh, you know, your clothes. It really fed into, um, I, I think, probably the verdict. I don't know if you felt that way, but I mean, it, it sounded like what they did is basically you know, one tried to discount what they were saying and the things that have been said over and over, like it wasn't really a big deal. Uh, and, and that two, that uh, Cedric, who was this guy who had been a Marine, who had been uh, literally a hero, uh, you described him actually stopping an escape from prison um, and had been given the uh, the Governor's Excellence Award for um, uh, for corrections professional. And, you know, and just gotten all of these awards uh, where they they literally tried to just smear him by going through things that were far in his past. Like he had struggled with with uh, with drug abuse uh, early on and, and used that as part of his story, uh, tried to make it sound like he was having an affair, tried to make it sound like he was lying. I mean, basically just a complete and total smear campaign. And then what I also noticed is is 
you, you mentioned how often you had to confront a witness about the fact that they had changed their testimony. Um, so it just, it, it really had this feeling from opening to close of that they were just uh, um, doing everything, I guess, you know, obviously to win their case, but on the other hand, just really uh, just smear your clients, in, which I could see uh, really causing a, a jury, and I'm sure you, to um, to become uh, uh, very upset during trial. I could see, you know, I, I know how I would be if if that were the were the defense. Yeah, I thought it was pretty offensive. And, you know, it's funny that you say going back to this idea of the white jury and, and approaching the case maybe a little bit differently. You know, I think as uh, Caucasians, we're a little more skeptical um, to claims of racism. You know, one thing I've wondered on was, you know, have you ever seen somebody play the race card to try to get special treatment and blame it on their blame it on racism when it's really something else? Um, and so I, I, I think that there is an inherent skepticism because we don't want to believe that people would do that or that it happens as much as it is. Or maybe we've seen people try to use it when they shouldn't try to use it. Um, and I had actually ripped up my original opening and I redid it. So my original opening was a little more emotional and uh, touched on, you know, Martin Luther King, touched on our struggle for civil rights, touched on uh, history of racism in Flint and how, you know, th there was housing discrimination. I ripped that all up. And uh, what I ended up doing instead was I kept it more factual. And I think although there was a race, you know, this was about racism and, and white on black racism. I think that by the end of the case, we were all in it together. And the jury saw that this could have been what happened to the Griffies could have happened to them. Uh, it might not have been the same way. It might not. It might not have been racism discrimination, but it was that they're being treated and ground up by a system that doesn't care about them, and that uh, and the defense played into that with their just falsehoods, blatant falsehoods, lying, cover ups, refusal to give an inch um, where they should have. You know, if the if they, they you know they never once apologized and never once said we did anything wrong. Um, so I, I think that that really tied together. And then in the closing, it was a lot more emotional. We did, we did discuss history of racism because I think after the jury had seen all the evidence and that they knew that this really did happen, uh, it was, I had more permission to be able to touch on those themes than I originally did in the beginning where I was, you know, I didn't want that skepticism to come and play before they heard the evidence. So I, I did tone it down. Um, but but yeah, I, you know, I think the state, um, a, lot, a lot of the witnesses just straight up lie. And we caught them in lies on multiple occasions. I have never seen so many witnesses. They would literally change their testimony on the stand like we weren't like like they weren't going to get caught doing it. Uh, it, it was mind boggling. Um, so, John, I want to about what Steve said about all this sort of dirt and sort of smear campaign basically against Cedric. Um, we, we have, you know, your outline of, of the closing, which is how we know it happened, but we don't have the transcripts of, of, of the trial and what, what was actually said. We know that Cedric had this really shining sort of um, work history, as, as Steve mentioned. How, how were they, I mean, what were they doing? How were they working in that in? And what, what were they trying to say? Were they trying to say he was lying? 
Yeah. So let me tell you about candidly kind of my biggest regret that I, if I could go back, that I would change if I could do this over again. So Cedric had a stellar work history. This guy worked his way up. Uh, this guy literally was born on a, uh, and picked cotton on a rural farm in uh, the South, worked his way up through inner city ghetto Detroit, uh, where there was drug dealers on his corner to become a Marine and worked his way up through the Department of Correction as a, as a guard. He was a prison guard and he worked his way up to a six figure position in administration as a deputy warden. It's kind of the shining American success story, especially for a minority, to be able to work out of this system. Um, everyone agreed Cedric's a great guy, that he had a stellar work history, he had no problems, he wasn't a complainer. Uh, one big issue that became an issue that I didn't think was, was that uh, in one of his counseling records, he disclosed to his counselor that he had a crack cocaine addiction when he was younger. Uh, including when he was a jail guard, a prison guard. Um, I had saw, there was just one note in the medical records. I had seen that and I made a mental note that I could file a motion and eliminate on it or at the very least address it in opening, you know, how he, how he had this, you know, crack cocaine addiction and he overcame that too. I mean, yeah. and, and the guy's a, a minister. He hasn't touched, he doesn't even drink. I asked him to go get a beer after you know, some of the trial days he would, before I knew he didn't, you know, he didn't know yeah. he was very personal about this stuff. Of course, I wouldn't ask him if I would have known, you know, that he had those struggles, right. but, um, you know, so in the, they, they didn't introduce these exhibits that contain this crack cocaine reference. And I certainly wasn't going to do it for him. Um, and so I had assumed that it was not going to be discussed at trial. And that was probably a bad assumption. I should have been more safe and if when in doubt, file the motion for God's sakes, right? You know, or, because then you can at least deal with it. I, I tried to be, well, I'm not going to give them, you know, something if they don't know about it, I'm not going to bring it to their attention. That was a big mistake because what happened was in the middle of the trial, Cedric testified and was just stellar. I mean, he's, he's an honest guy. I mean, he was untouchable. He was the best uh, plaintiff. Uh, testimony because normally you're trembling when the plaintiff testifies because oh, yeah. that's how your cases. I've had so many cases get ruined <laughs> right. because the plaintiff blew it on the stand. I can't tell you, uh, and that's more often than not. But uh, you know, the one thing that kind of caught us off guard is when they started impeaching him with this record that I objected to, but that you know he had a crack cocaine addiction. We had not told the jury about it, um, and so. There is a sense of we were hiding something uh, because we didn't bring it up. And Cedric got very nervous about that. And so then they tried to use literally for the next three weeks, all we heard was crack, 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 crack from the defense. And finally, one day I, I lost it in front of the jury. And I said, you know, never in my life did I think we were going to be I was going to hear be here defending some some guy who, who's, who made some mistakes and smoked crack 25 years ago. And, and, and pull themselves out of it and, and to go on to become a family man and a father and a minister and all this stuff. So again, this was a smear campaign and it did, it did hurt, but it, I think that in the end, it hurt the defense more than us because right. by trying to use this to define this man, something that happened 25 years ago had nothing to do with this case. 
there's there was no allegation that he was still using drugs, that he was high, or that he couldn't do his job. I mean, you you can't smoke crack, and this guy gets drug tested. I mean, he, he works at a prison for God's sakes, but they overused it and they overplayed their hand on that. And I think this, you know, played into this is a smear campaign. What does this have to do with this case? Well, and it's also. Uh, and- when I read it, I was like, it's also very racist. I mean, I think everybody yeah. knows the crack cocaine sentencing guidelines. It was a huge, huge, hugely racist policy. And so just the idea of bringing up crack that many times, I'm just like, really? You're, you are in this case with this much racism. Now you're go- the defense is going to focus on this, on a very old issue with crack cocaine that has nothing to do with what happened. I just was like, man, more, there wasn't enough sort of racism against your clients. Yeah. And I think that backfired too. That's a good point. That's exactly what I said to the jury in closing. I said, why in God's name do you think that they, that we heard about crack cocaine Mm -hmm. for three weeks of this trial, this trial has, what does this trial have to do with something that somebody did 25 years ago that has no bearing on anything in this case, except to try to appeal to your bias and to say, oh, this black man who smoked crack cocaine uh, is a bad person or a bad man. And therefore, you know, you shouldn't award, you know, any verdict or, or money. And it, it was, it was a blatant, it was a subtle racist move. Um, not surprising given what came out of the defense, but uh, one in doubt, file the motion one day. Don't be like me. So Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, when you have an issue like that, you, you file the motion. And then if the judge denies your motion, then you know it's going to come in. So you might as well hit it head on, right, you know, in voir dire and then in opening. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You see defense lawyers find something that they think is going to work, and then they, then they just beat it into the ground where it, it would have been, and this isn't to give, you know, a ton of tips to my defense uh, lawyer friends, uh, but, um, but you know, usually the better way is, or the, the lawyers you see on the other side is they'll sprinkle it in just a few times and then they'll right. come back to it in closing. You know, that way it's just stuck in your mind, but it's not really, they're not, it's not like they're like, uh, you know, I'm not trying to say anything bad about them, but it's, it's a fact, you know, you all just need to consider that. Um, yes, yeah, Steve, I agree with that hundred percent. And they could have used it in a better way and, said, oh, how come you haven't heard about this till you know, five weeks in the trial, you know, and, and they did. Um, yeah. Yeah. And- yeah. But John, I also appreciate you bringing that up because I think we have all really been in that situation of seeing something in the record somewhere that is small that we're like, oh, you know, it kind of, it triggers something in us, but like, you know, these cases are huge. As you said, they're complex and we're slammed and we're people. <laughs> and well, so sometimes yeah, you have uh, this thing where you're like, you know, you make a call and, and, or it slips your mind, whatever. Um, and so I'm just glad that you kind of brought that up because I think, I think that happens, that kind of stuff happens all the time. It happens in every yeah. case. There's something that you're like, oh, I should have yeah, filed know, the, a motion um, or not filed a motion. I always have these, uh, you know, always say, uh, you know, do what I say, not do what I do. I always tell people it's a great idea to, uh, you know, just keep a running file of your motions and limine. When it comes in your mind, just right. type a quick note in there. Now, how many times I actually do that is very little, but um, but it, it is a good, it is a good practice as you're going through a file because there's so many things to keep uh, together, especially when you're putting a trial together. Uh, just drop, you know, keep an, keep a little file, motions and limine file. Just drop a note in there. That way, when you come back. 
and you're looking at what what motions and limiting need to file, you're like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. And way. I mean, let's be real. Like what trial have you ever been in where you've filed more motions and limiting than the defense? No, never. 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 So like yeah. <laughs> might as yeah. well like get a good list going because they're still gonna have more. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. right. That's right. Exactly. Right. Well, well uh, John, one thing I wanted to talk about is, um, you, I mean, not only, you know, did you have a, uh, uh, I mean, it, it sounded like every witness was changing their testimony, but you also, it, it looked to me as if you were able to develop a case of uh, a pattern by the state and by the Department of Corrections that when there is a, when there was a complaint about, you know, something that they had a basically a pattern of how they dealt with that, of usually attacking the victim, you know, letting people see their witness statements, doing all kinds of things that they're not supposed to be able to do. And you actually, at least from what I could tell, it sounded like you actually had a couple of witnesses who had had, who had been subject to that t- sort of intimidation by the state. And I'm just wondering, how were you able to develop the that part of the case, the pattern of how um, the state of Michigan or the DOC uh, reacted to complaints and um, and then able to you know find those witnesses to put on the stand. Yeah, so twofold. I actually had two of my previous clients who I represented against the state of Michigan come in and testify. Okay. My very first employment case that I ever did ten years ago. Uh, guy's name was Michael Hester. We got a verdict. Uh, it was my first employment verdict, and he came in and testified to, and helped establish pattern and practice. And also to impeach the state's uh, defense that, oh, it's all the Griffey's fault because they didn't complain sooner. Had they complained, this would have this system would have worked and, you know, everything would have been kosher. Uh, and and th- that's not true. And so we had uh, individuals who were in a position to talk about through personal knowledge how the system is a failure and how it actually works against the individuals. The, the star witness, um, I think, though, was the head of internal affairs, a guy named Stephen Marshke, who this is the guy who's in Lansing. He's like right next to the director. He runs the whole internal affairs department, runs thousands of investigations a year against individuals. What Mr. Marshke didn't know, unfortunately, for the state of Michigan, is that I had previous trial testimony of his. And I had a civil service complaint that he himself had filed like 10 years ago in which he let, in which he had lost his job and then filed a grievance and alleged that the state has a pattern of targeting individuals oh, who wow. file complaints and that they retaliate against them. And wow. that, um, and yeah. And that, there's it's corrupt. In fact, he had put in this in this in these court pleadings that it was the Michigan Department of Corruption. And so this guy got on and said uh, his initial testimony was, oh, we run a tight ship. This this would never happen. This is crazy that the even the idea that any of this could ever happen is just a pipe dream, Mr. Marco. And you're crazy and all this stuff. And then one by one, he was cross-examined on all this testimony where he had said the exact opposite. Uh, and he literally became flustered. It was truly as close to a code red, did you order the code red moment in a <laughs> yeah. that I had ever come to. At one point, he completely lost it and yelled at me and said, 
if you think I'm a liar, then you should then you should refer me to the attorney general's office for perjury. And the attorney general was defending the state of Michigan. (laughs) So I turned to the jury and I said, you think they're going to do something about it? (laughs) And, and, you know, at that, I knew, I mean, it it was probably one of the best uh, turnarounds I had ever seen because uh, he, you know, he, he fell apart and he was a liar. And so, Wow. Yeah. Well, and so you're, um, you know, so you're, were your clients going every day? And if so, how do you prepare them? You know, we talk a lot about on this show about how it's, you know, when we're representing people, it's usually, you know, one of the worst things, if not the worst thing in their life has happened to them. And, if they, if they are in the position where they need to testify, the different ways to prepare them to testify. But I can't even imagine after, you know, they, they haven't gone through one horrible car accident or whatever. They've gone through, um, you know, months or years of kind of this harassment and this, this mental and emotional distress from it. And then they've got to go into a six-week trial where they're going to hear people call them liars and all this other stuff. Um, so I'm curious when you're, how you handle, since you handle cases like this a lot, how you prepare your clients, how you handle your clients at trial and and, and what you do with them on the stand. Yeah, that's a great question. So I can tell you it's extremely difficult. This was one of the hardest things that they ever had to go through. In addition to already going through a horrible life experience, Lisa was in tears almost every day. Mm. Um, she, you know, these are, uh, and she did not want to go to trial. In fact, I had concerns that she would not go to trial, uh, you know, that she was just going to give up, but her husband and her talked and they knew that this was in a way bigger than them. And it wasn't just about, you know, they can go to trial so they can get money. It really wasn't about that. I know that sounds cliche, but it was about telling their story and, being vindicated. Um, and, you know, we talked about that. So I always, you know, I always tell my clients and I told them this isn't going to be easy and it's going to be difficult, but no matter what happens, I promise you at the end of this case that you're going to feel better about yourself. It's almost some closure that they were able to, to have as a result of this. I mean, imagine being Mm -hmm chewed up and eaten by your employer that you devoted your life to for 30 years each. Uh, and then thrown away like a piece of garbage and not having a voice, not having any justice. And so um, for them, I think it was cathartic in a lot of ways. And I told them, you know, that and if if they believe in their attorney, your clients will go with you. You know, they'll hold your hand and they'll go with you and you have to believe in them and they have to believe in you. And this case was easier because I believed 110% in the Griffies. Uh, I didn't have a doubt in my mind about their authenticity, about their character, and they believed in me. Now, when you don't have 110% belief in your client, which you're not always going to have, um, things are a little more difficult. But you know, you have to work with them and uh, you know talk about. I always tell them, look. It's like you're going to be in church. Okay. You got to act like you're going to be in church. You got it. This is serious. And it takes a lot of work. 
uh, for depending on the client, but with different people, a lot of work. And, you know, the jury's good on picking up on stuff. You can't bullshit. You can only bullshit people for so long. Right. Uh, and, and after six weeks of sitting there, they're going to pick up on all kinds of stuff. They're, they know me probably better than a lot of my friends. I mean, yeah. seeing me every day, all day, watching me, being in the spotlight, right? So they're going to pick up on stuff. And when you, it's, you know, if, if you have some issues with your client, you got to be honest about it. Uh, because if you try to hide it and lie about it, and then they pick it up on their own and think that you're lying to them, it's game over. Right. Uh, and it's game for, for either side. So, you know, if I've had clients that are angry. And, you know, I always you try to address that. You know, I always tell the jury in opening or voir dire, I'm a little scared that you're going to hold it against us because my client is still angry about what happened. And maybe you'll see some of it through this trial about how angry he is and how he holds on to this and can't let it go. Now, how, how much better is that, being honest about that, addressing it openly, then trying to hide it and say, my client's, you know, not angry. He's just sad. And then have them, you know, have them find out that what you're telling them isn't true. Right. And the right. state, you know, the state fell into that trap by lying and, and mm -hmm. uh, not being honest and they pick up on it a lot. So, yeah. So I, I try to, you, you have to be honest about your flaws and address them. And they're not always going to be fatal for you. If you can address what they are, where they're fatal when you try to lie about it and you get caught through. Right. That's my point. So, I mean, on that, I mean, you said that, that Lisa was emotional and, and almost cried every day. How, how did she do on the stand in front of the jury? I mean, it sounds she must have done great, I, I assume. But yeah, she did great. I mean, she was crying. Um, she was explaining what happened. Um, you know, she's a very proper woman. She's not prone to like outbursts and stuff. So, uh, I mean, they, they I can't stress how I had great people, which made it a lot easier. I had great. I wasn't as worried. Um, you know, Cedric broke down and started crying early on too. And it was, I was, it was unexpected for me. So, because I had seen this big, strong man and they had mm -hmm. talked the entire trial about how he's a big, strong man. And so it, it almost felt a little incongruent. And so I was feeling incongruent. So I addressed that openly with the jury. I said, instead of like, you know, I, I said, you know, Cedric, we've heard this whole trial about how you are this leader, how you're this, um, you know, strong man. And now you're crying and a Marine. And now you're crying like this in front of the jury. What's going on? You know, why are you feeling this way and address it through that way and then have him explain how embarrassing it was and how he's had to sit here for three weeks while they shit on him and his wife. Um, so no, I, 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 but, but you have to be prepared for those, for those yeah. moments. I think. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the great trials podcast, unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. 
Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes. They're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. Lisa had spent her career as a probation officer, so she's obviously had to deal with some uh, tough times and difficult people. Not 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 the racism. I mean, just being a probation officer. And then he's been a an assistant warden and a guard and all that. I mean, I mean, these are tough people. Uh, so to see them break down really says something about how much impact this had on them, because I would imagine these aren't the typical type of people who break down very easily. Yeah, no, they're not. And that was part of the theme of, you know, these people have struggled shit their whole life and they were fine. I mean, they dealt with it. This is different. What happened here is different. This is different. This isn't just oh, you don't like, you know, a comment that somebody made or something like that. But, you know, you have to prepare your clients. When I was young, my worst story is my client was nervous. He he went out to lunch before he got on the stand and he came back and his eyes were bloodshot and he was stone to the bone. He was so high. And I said, (laughs) I was so angry. I didn't think I had to tell my client, don't smoke a joint before you get on the stand. Um, but I always use that story because the guy bombed, uh, for obvious reasons. And, you know, this was like one of the first trials I ever did. And so I always, now I tell all my clients that story, which is a true story of the guy. It was a defense verdict. Go figure uh, in that case. But I tell them this, this is kind of the ultimate what not to do, Uh, as an example. Yeah. My, my version of that story is like the, I think it was one of the first client depositions that I ever went to. And we had a client who, um, was a Bhutanese refugee. So he, and he spoke no English. I mean, there was no overlap. And I went to his deposition, which was noticed by the defense. So the translator was there, was hired by them and we're sitting in the deposition. And one of the defense lawyers asks him, we're in this horrible nursing home and uh, where he's being treated. He's a quadriplegic. And 
I don't even know why they asked this question, but one of the, the one of the defense lawyers asked him if his doctors had told him when he'd be able to go home, which to me was just a rude question to begin with. You yeah, don't really. really ask a guy who's who's a quadriplegic that question. But he answered the question. Um, my lawyers told me I can't go home until my case is over. <laughs> oh, my God. So this no. is through the translator. This is through the translator. So if I'm, obviously. Oh, my God. So obviously what he's trying to say is what we had told him many times, which is that his family could not afford to take care of him at home. He did not live in a wheelchair accessible home. He lived in a, you know, apartment in the projects and was in a giant wheelchair and needed 24 hour care. But what he said through the translator was that his lawyers told him he had to stay in the, in the nursing home. I was oh, like, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> what happened? What ended up happening? I, I just. Oh my gosh. I know. No. I mean, I just sat there. I mean, l- luckily, although it's horrible for him, I mean, luckily this is a guy who's so obviously injured that that was just, nobody's looking at him and thinking this is a guy who's malingering or something. Yeah. But I said to the lawyers, like in, in the parking lot after the deposition, I was like, I hope you guys know that we're not the ones keeping him in this, you know, I know but that's the worst home. thing you could ever hear. And then oh, yeah. I know. And, you know and then it affects your credibility, right? I know. So oh, that, yeah. that's my lesson. Now, now I know. Um, and, and that was the only translator that was there was the translator um, for the deposition. After every deposition after that, when I had a deposition of my clients, I had my own translator. And then there was the translator for the deposition. So I right. certainly learned from it. Um, but it, that was rough. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Those are the moments we hope we never have. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. we always to talk about now. Yeah, right, we right. always learn from them, right? That's that's what you learn when you get get something that goes wrong. That's right. That's right. Well, hey, hey I wanted to make sure I understood, John. Um, so, you, you know, we talked briefly at the beginning about how Lisa had been discriminated against. So she eventually files a complaint. And then um, that complaint gets sent to Cedric's uh, boss, the warden, uh, I think. And then he starts getting retaliated against. But I... I, I I wasn't sure I was understanding what exactly the things were. There was comment talking about polling a ticket and then uh, that he had been written up for the five hour energy drink incident. What, what, what exactly yeah. were they doing to him? So this was one of the most complicated cases that I've ever had to present because it's so convoluted. And when I, uh, you know, when I met with the Griffies, it took me so long to untangle this web. So when this case started out, I only represented Lisa. Cedric hadn't been harassed or retaliated against. So Griffey, Mr. Griffey brought Lisa to me. He said, my wife's being horribly harassed. They're messing with her. I said, okay, this sounds like a case. And I filed the lawsuit. While the lawsuit was, the lawsuit was filed because it was like involved the state, it was on the news. So I went on the news and talked about how horrible this stuff was. And then I get a call from Cedric about eight months after I went on the news and filed this case publicly for his wife that says, John, I don't know what to do. You're not going to believe this, but I'm being terminated. Hmm. Can you help me? And I'm thinking that doesn't make much sense. So we had to tie his wife, who was in a different facility, they didn't work together. Uh, she worked at a different location. She had different bosses. They didn't even have any coworkers in common to what happened to Cedric. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was when the lawsuit was filed, we found out during the trial, actually, that one of the head people in Lansing sent a copy of Lisa's lawsuit to Cedric's boss, who then kept it in a locked safe in his office, which was very bizarre, we all thought. Um, you know, why would you keep this lawsuit? Lawsuit that has nothing to do with Cedric Griffey and a safe in your office um, at a different work facility. And then Cedric was set up and had all these false charges. He was framed for um, all these things in short order within eight months of his wife filing the case and it being on the news. So there was a lot of threads to connect. I know that, and on first blush, that might sound crazy. Like the wife files a lawsuit and somehow her husband is terminated. Who's like, you know, 20 miles away or whatever. Uh, But the, trust me, the evidence showed that's what happened. This is a guy who had 29 years and a spotless record. And then in eight months, he suddenly brought up on three frame job charges that almost 99% of the witnesses said were just crazy charges that like they were made up. We, we had they, the state called one of their star witnesses who was supposed to say that uh, Cedric violated all these rules and he got on the stand. And I, I'll, it was the craziest testimony. This guy's name was Goodfellow. I'll never forget. And the state had put him on and they hadn't done a good job on asking him what he was going to say. They were relying on the statements that they had. The guy goes, you know, I've been really thinking about this and I've been really looking at what I did. And, and, you know, this was all wrong. Mr. Griffey didn't do anything wrong. And so, I mean, it was just another crazy moment, but we, we showed that all these, all these charges were just made up. I mean, they literally made them up out of thin air. And so it was two cases in one. That was part of the reason it took six weeks. We literally had Lisa's case with its own witnesses, its own doctors at a facility. And then we transitioned into Cedric's case, which involves completely different people, um, except for the higher ups in Lansing. And so tying everything together and simplifying it was very difficult, very difficult. Was there any attempt by the defense to try to split that up, to try to split the the cases up? Uh, You know, that's a good question. No, they did not file a motion to sever. Um, But no, there wasn't. There wasn't uh, at all, actually. So, yeah, well, and I mean, because it makes sense for you and maybe they just figured it was maybe their especially the way they were kind of approaching the case. Maybe they thought it'd make sense for them to, to make it this story about two people trying to rip off the system or whatever. Um, right. So maybe they didn't want right. to either, but because, but that is interesting that you have these two things that are obviously related and yet your witnesses and your timelines are going to be separate. Right. Um, yeah. It was two completely different cases. Yeah. Really. I mean, with the common threats. Right. How did you learn during trial that the uh, complaint had been sent to uh, Cedric's boss? What what uh, what came up there? Well, okay, keep in mind there's tens of thousands of pages of documentation in this case, right. and I reviewed everything at one point in time. But keeping everything together was extremely challenging. Um, the they called this witness who was the former uh, warden, and while he was testifying, 
I was reviewing a big information packet. Every investigation at Corrections has a packet that's like 10 inches thick, okay, thousands of pages. Right. And I just noticed a straight line in it that said that uh, this guy had the complaint in his safe. And when the new warden came in and took over, he told him about it and like handed it to him, which I thought was just really bizarre. And at the time when I had read it a year before, I didn't pick up on its importance. But after all the evidence had come in in the middle of the trial, I mean, that was the message right there. Right. That Lansing had sent a civil rights lawsuit that has nothing to do with this guy. And I and I asked him about I asked him one question on cross. So it's true that they sent this and you put it in a safe and then you gave it to New Warden. He said yes. And the defense didn't ask any questions. I don't think they understood the importance of it. But I thought that was a smoking gun because there yeah. was no reasonable explanation for why in God's name you would send this after the lawsuit was filed and it went on the news. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, that, that's just crazy. What, one thing I, I saw in one of the articles and I wanted to ask you about, that, was there a quote from one of the supervisors that, that um, you asked him, you know, if, if you're getting discriminated against, what should you do about it? And he said, you should c- shut up and go back to work. That was actually in a previous case. Okay. <laughs> uh, with Michael Hester, that was the first employment case I ever did okay. against Department of Corrections. The guy, his boss, said in deposition that no, I that no one has been discriminated against in America since they were brought over on the slave ships. Oh. And that they're just making it up. And I said, well, since no one has been discriminated against, what should they do if they feel they are? He said, they should just be quiet and go back to work. They should shut up and go back to work. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. It's unbelievable. And this is state government. You know, you guys touched on that. I think that made it worse. You know, um, it's this stuff's never okay. But a lot of times these cases I have, you'll have them in like um, blue collar jobs. It's more prevalent. Like, I know that's a generalization, but like, you know, in a mechanic shop, I get a lot of these cases in mechanic shops in things like that. It just seems to be more prevalent. That doesn't mean it's more acceptable, but it's more prevalent. I think this was especially egregious because it was in the state government and it reached the highest levels of state government. It wasn't like some stray comments in the back of a maintenance shed or something. Yeah, Um, right. Not to diminish that, but Right. No, you but you picture, you know, some of the things that you read about that that Lisa was having to deal with being, you know, you you think, you know, maybe it seems to make it's never okay as you point out, but it seems to make more sense if you're kind of in a work situation where there's not a good um, chain of command or where the it's a really casual environment. It's a too casual environment. And so you just don't have um, a lot of structure and guidelines and, and um, consequences when people are doing things they shouldn't do. But yeah, I, I think that's, you know, it, it it makes it crazy. It makes it seem crazier, I should say, that it's such at such a that it's the state, that it's the government, and that it's that it's massive, and it's in this situation. You know, I think a lot of times we deal with, we hear from clients who ideally should have reported something or should have made a record of something, and 
but they didn't because they were scared to, or because at the end of the day, they just wanted to go home. They didn't want to go to their supervisor's office and talk about this horrible thing that happened to them or these horrible words that people use to them. And so they don't. And then because of that, it makes it a hard case for us. Um, or an impossible case, you know, a case you can't win, a case you have to turn down. But the idea that that she was filing, that Lisa was filing these complaints multiple times, was doing everything she was supposed to do, and that in a in a place where you feel like is all policy and procedure, that nothing is happening, is is I agree. To me, it's just it's more egregious and and um, I could see how it would factor into things like the Flint water and people just being like. Stuff just, just this, this sense of feeling like your trust is totally misplaced. Yeah. One of the things with these cases is they're incredibly hard because there's so many different people and they each have, uh, the, the state always says, well, they always like to pass the buck because there's so many policies. There's so many witnesses. There's so many little kind of cogs in the machine that it's very easy for them to say, well, we couldn't have possibly discriminated against you because that decision was made by so-and-so who is in Lansing and they don't even know about, you know, your wife's harassment. Uh, and so that's the defense, that these decisions are being made very far removed based on evidence uh, and that there's no connection. There's never any connection. What I think the complaint, Steve, showed that we talked about earlier is that there was connection right. uh, and that what we were able to show is it was really very easy for someone if you were at a high enough level and you wanted to retaliate against someone to do that by putting certain things in motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was a something we had to overcome because every case with the state, they always hide behind this kind of labyrinthian uh, setup you know, this labyrinth of rules and policies and procedures and people all over the place uh, tying it together. But, uh, you know, I think it worked against them in this case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I wanted to turn to uh, the damages uh, and how you presented the damages in this case. And, and um, you know, first of all, you, you went through, uh, it sounded like you had some really good experts, uh, psychologists that came in and talked about post-traumatic stress disorder and just, um, you know, the effect that this sort of, you know, overtime racism day in and day out and hostile work environment, how that just changes the chemistry of the brain and and how this affected them. But then uh, in your closing argument, I really liked how you, you know, tied in the themes of, you know, that, that you know, both, both uh, Lisa and Cedric had worked their entire lives, uh, you know, in these jobs and that you take a certain pride in your, in your job. I mean, in, especially in America, we identify with our occupation and take pride in the fact that we do well and only to have that completely ruined for the two of them. Uh, and, you know, and, and they're, you know, hope, hoping to retire and hoping to retire, you know, from a job that they've worked very hard at. And now that's all basically being completely taken away from them. Uh, and then, you know, tying in, uh, I, you had a great quote in there about, uh, you know, they're not called the golden years for nothing. It's because they're supposed to be the best years. And, now they, that's been ruined for them. So, I mean, just to talk a little bit about how you develop the damages and then some of the themes you used in closing, because I thought you did a really nice job with that. Yeah, we were lucky that we had a full battery of uh, professionals who were able to, to assist us with damages. 
they had a treating, their treating PCP who they knew their whole life testified. That was great because this guy knew them before and after. And he's a PCP. He doesn't have, uh, you know, he's not a hired expert. He doesn't have any uh, incentive. He wasn't, he did, they didn't start seeing him for litigation. So that was excellent. Then we had therapist and psychiatrist who was a treater. Again, that's excellent because they're, they're not an expert. So they're not, they're, they're unimpeachable for the most part. And then we did have um, an expert psychiatrist and an expert economist. Uh, that was a full battery of damage experts. I mean, if they did, the jury didn't believe one, that's fine. But we had this whole battery and they were consistent with each other on what they were saying. Uh, the defense had had sent the clients to a uh, IME, a DME, and the DME person diagnosed them with depression related to work. So the defense didn't call this person. Right. I tried to use that. The judge said I couldn't comment on the fact that they didn't call this person, which I thought was a mistake. You are allowed to comment on missing evidence. Certainly the fact that they didn't call their own doctor, I think, right. was relevant, but it didn't much matter. Um, so they were kind of left bare. I don't know how much they could have done against this. And then uh, in, in so in closing, I was able to use that and then also tie in. I mean, this was especially egregious because these people had devoted their whole lives to the state of Michigan, their whole adult working life. They, there wasn't any baggage on these were bad workers. They weren't bad people. The state wasn't able to bring in people to say that these are like, you know, they make stuff up or they're complainers or they're, they don't have a good work ethic. So they, I had a lot of good things to work with. I had a lot of good clay to mold and to discuss in my closing about how this has ruined these people's lives. And we're not allowed to ask for punitive damages in Michigan. But I also, you know, tied in how the defense still hasn't done anything about it and how they, you know, how we're at trial and they're continuing uh, to damage the plaintiffs by refusing to take responsibility, by calling them liars and uh, re-victimizing them through the whole trial process, essentially. I mean, it was six weeks of re-victimization, uh, and the jury saw that, them crying, them being berated. Uh, at one point, the defense suggested that Cedric had an affair with someone without any evidence whatsoever. Um, these types of just low, dirty, very despicable behavior that continued helped drive damages, uh, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, yeah. And they just kept digging themselves in. I liked one of the things you said, John, or at least it looks like you said based on your outline that I feel like was kind of a cool Jedi mind trick is that when you when in your closing, when you switch to damages, you know, you just said something in the beginning about like, I'm going to talk about damages now and that'll be the easiest thing that you that you decide all day. And I just sort of like that because I don't know, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if they felt like that was true, but like once you had said that, it was sort of like, yeah, come on. We just gotta, we just gotta hammer out these numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever it worked, the, you know, they, they, they awarded the economics wholesale to the penny. Um, 
And, you know, non-economics are always tough. Right. Um, what is that? What is that worth? Um, and that's always, you know, the struggle there. But um, I, they were very, they were ready. I mean, they were ready and the state hadn't given them any good reason not to. Right. What, one question I had, it, I saw somewhere in your closing, was Lisa still working in her job at the time of the trial? Yes, she was. Yeah, wow. that was also another struggle. And that's what they said. Oh, she still has her job. Uh, you know, what's the big deal? However, you know, it wasn't the job that she was supposed to be in. She she had to move multiple times and, um, you know, it affected it affected her and it continues to affect her. I mean, her husband, yeah. to be fair, what other choice did they have? Uh, you know, her husband lost his job and had to work two jobs. He was working the night shift as a Pinkerton security guard. This is a guy who was a deputy warden, which also helped drive damages. I mean, this was degrading yeah. um, what they did. Okay, they not only took away his livelihood, but they degraded him at the end of his career and not only took away what he had, but just smeared him, smeared his reputation. They put up a poster at the facility that had his picture on it and said, you know, Cedric Griffey is barred from the facility. So all these things, it wasn't just you lost your job, but it was the way that he lost his job after a career. And the degrade, the degrade, uh, the degradation, the smearing, the uh, just horrible nature that it happened. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, how uh, difficult that must have been for Lisa to, you know, I mean, and and the amount of courage for both her and Cedric to bring this case, um, you know, really uh, is a just speaks volumes. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, there's a, I saw somewhere that uh, you were, after the trial, we're going to move for attorney's fees. Um, did that happen? And, and what was the result of that? Yeah. So I moved for attorney fees under the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act, which is the state anti-discrimination statute. Um, the plaintiff may be awarded attorney fees. It doesn't say shall, but the general practice is that they are awarded. The judge uh, declined to award attorney fees, saying basically we got enough money. Uh, he didn't say it like that, but he basically said you got enough money. Right. Um, but we also had what's called case evaluation sanctions, which is a it's it'll take it, you don't need to know, but it's a we were we were able to they had to give us attorney fees for approximately half the case, approximately the trial. So I submitted a fee petition. We had a hearing on it. Um, and the judge hasn't made a decision on that, but, but okay. they, the judge, it's mandatory that some will be, um, awarded. And then we still have, uh, the appellate issue of whether we should have gotten attorney fees, which, which I think we should. I, I don't think it's good policy to say, what happened to the plaintiffs was especially egregious. Right. And the plaintiff's attorney did an especially good job. So because it was so egregious and you did such a good job, we're not going to give you attorney fees. I mean, that right. would send the message that, you know, only the most trivial things would be worth attorney fees or the worst lawyering. 
Right. Uh, so I think that sets a bad policy precedent. But, no, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Well, uh, John, this has been just a, a great discussion, and we really appreciate your time. We've kept you for a long time. Is there anything else about the uh, the Griffey versus Michigan Department of Corrections case uh, that you want to make sure our listeners know that we haven't talked about yet? No, I mean, just believe in yourself and believe in your client. You know, this is a case that a lot of people might have never even taken. That yeah. this This case, you know, this could have been somebody else. So, um you just, you just have to believe in your client. And I always, you know, Jerry Spence always used to say, I choose clients, not cases. I think this is a perfect example. This turned into be a great case, but it started with great clients. Yeah. Um, and it's not always apparent on the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, clients are, uh, are, are, your clients and how they are and, and how they do. I mean, that's just so important to any case. I saw on your website, I just wanted to ask you about this. I saw on your website, it looks like you had, this isn't your only verdict against the Department of Corrections. Is that right? No, it's not. I mean, I have, um, I say I'm a glutton for punishment because I have a lot of Department of Corrections cases pending. Right. I'm going to trial against corrections in uh, May of this uh, year, in fact, same attorney for the defense. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And same attitude and a zero offer case. Right. So it will go. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm hoping that lightning strikes twice, but we'll see. Uh, but yes, I mean, I, I have a lot of cases against corrections, um, which makes it easier because, you know, it's a very unique area, but it's also a difficult area. So yeah. And, and well, it's sad that there's so many cases out there against corrections. It's really sad. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to go to this one in June based on based on what you described, all the excitement in this one. I kind of. Uh, <laughs> you're all invited. Macomb County Circuit Court, Judge Servito. Okay. <laughs> well, we wish you all the best for that trial and and for uh, and for the Griffies. Let me remind uh, everyone that we've been talking about uh, the Lisa and Cedric Griffey versus uh, Michigan Department of Corrections case uh, tried in Genesee County, Michigan, in September of 2019, and was a total verdict of uh, about 11 million six hundred thousand there, there may be a little bit more i know there was some interest awarded too uh but 11.6 million dollars uh just uh great work fantastic work uh and john we really appreciate your time and uh thank you for coming on the show thank you guys so much for having me and it's been a pleasure Thanks, John. And and let me remind everybody, because I almost forgot, if you want to look up John, go to MarcoLaw.com. That's M-A-R-K-O. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, 
or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.